This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we're going to Lake Macquarie in New South Wales. It's the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference at Myuna Bay. We'll hear from Greenpeace campaigners in Indonesia. They're talking about the coal mines and peat fires which cause climate change. We've got an Indian anti-coal campaigner who won the Green Nobel Prize and one of the Pacific warriors who led the sit-in at our Parliament House before the Paris Climate Conference, plus an Aboriginal elder who was there and who is a veteran in fighting off coal and coal seam gas. One of the speakers said that they represent people whose voices are drowned out by the politics of greed. They might be in remote forests and villages and we don't usually hear from them in the mainstream media, so I hope you listen carefully. Jess Panagyris was the first one I spoke to. She's a Greenpeace forest campaigner in Indonesia and she's followed by Arif Fianto, who is campaigning against coal mines expanding into forests and agricultural lands in Indonesia. Just tell us about uh, how you got into that and uh, the rainforest work that you've been doing. Mm. Well, thanks very much for having me on the program. So Greenpeace uh, has been running a campaign to save the Indonesian rainforests for over a decade. And it's really got, it's got two tracks, really. The first is that the products of Indonesian deforestation used to flow unchecked to global markets. So in Australia, for example, you could buy paper on the shelves that came from Indonesian rainforests, palm oil that was grown by clearing rainforests and so what we've done across the world is to try and get the really the big players who buy who buy those products and sell them internationally to commit to zero deforestation policies which means that they commit to ensuring that their products that they sell don't contain rainforest destruction Um, and we also run a campaign on the ground in Indonesia that is I guess around trying to secure zero deforestation in legislation within Indonesia and a big part of that at the moment is trying to get transparency around who owns what land and who is able to do what um, on forest land. Is it dangerous for Indonesian activists to take this on? Like I know you have to not just have an office in Jakarta, you presumably have to go out to where the forests are. Is it dangerous? It is, yes. And um, I'm impressed every day by the bravery of our activists and, and the other activists that work in Indonesia and across the peninsula. It's, yeah, 
like they they're the ones that have gone through kind of decades of mm. of danger and you know Indonesia has one of the biggest tropical rainforests in the world and we really uh, all of us owe those people a lot of gratitude mm-hmm. for the risks that they've taken to protect those forests. Well, I think it became a really international issue this year. Uh, it has been before we've known about the peat fires, but this year with the Paris conference, people were saying just on several days that emissions from those deliberately lit fires to clear land for peat, uh, no, well, it, there's peat underneath, but to clear land for palm oil plants, um, those fires equaled the whole emissions of, say, the United States, which is heavily industrialised. So people sat up and listened when that, and beyond zero, we did a program interviewing someone at Bogor University. But I'd like to know, can you explain how it happens that, that these deliberately lit fires are continuing when the Indonesian government has laws in place to prevent that illegal or some of it's illegal Mm. so the terrible fires that happened last year um, and that happen actually every year uh, the root cause of that is decades of rainforest and peatland destruction for the pulp and palm oil sectors Um, so several decades of draining peatland Um, peatland is normally wet it's not the kind of material that normally burns Um, but you know if you want to grow palm oil plantation or another form of plantation uh, you dig a, a channel into that peatland and the water drains out and then it's tinder dry and the thing about peatland is that fire can travel underground once it takes hold Last year's fires, as you pointed out, were a, were a climate emergency. On the really bad days, the emissions from the fires, as you mentioned, exceeded that of the US economy. Um, and so it's, it's vital um, that we protect all peatland mm-hmm. immediately um, and cease rainforest destruction. Now, the Indonesian president at the end of last year did promise to end new developments on peatland um, which is a, is a real breakthrough mm. and what we now need is the companies that operate in Indonesia to support what the president has committed to do um, and to rule out any peatland destruction, any rainforest destruction in the making of their products. Mm. Everyone needs to really get behind it now because mm. we've seen globally that this is of significance for us to save our climate. So palm oil, how does that put the palm oil industry? What position does that leave them in? Well there are some real leaders in the palm oil industry who've committed to zero deforestation and we're campaigning at the moment to try and make sure that every company, every company that operates in Indonesia should commit to saying we're not going to trade with anyone that's continuing to destroy rainforests and Mm -hmm. peatland. And what that means is full traceability. So they need to be able to say from the plantation where it's grown through to the product that ends up on the supermarket shelf that at no point in that chain was peatland or rainforest destroyed. Mm. We've recently done a ranking of 14 global companies who have committed to zero deforestation and what we've found is that really only two of them could say they were making good progress Uh towards coming through on their promises Mm. and that three companies, PepsiCo, Johnson & Johnson and Colgate-Palmolive were failing to comply with their zero deforestation policies. And we need to, as consumers of those products, hold those companies to account. We should not be worried that every time we brush our teeth Mm. that rainforests are being destroyed Mm. for that. So it's really essential that as consumers in countries like Australia, we do all we can to hold these global companies to account because they're the ones that can shift practices on the ground in Indonesia. So what can listeners do? Can they find a website and join up? 
Yeah, look, please, um, anyone that's listening and wants to get involved, um, please go to our website. You can sign the petition to those three global companies, calling on them to implement their deforestation policies properly we also this is a long-running campaign so there'll be a lot more happening Mm. throughout the year so please sign up we'll continue to update you um, and there'll be further actions you can take throughout the year okay what about draining the peatland is there some way that they can um, re-wet it absolutely so as a kind of very first step that immediately should be taken um, we should dam those peatland canals Mm. and in fact that's something that Greenpeace activists, along with a lot of allied groups in Indonesia, did at the end of last year. Uh, they dammed a peatland drainage canal in central Kalimantan, which was one of the areas where the fires were the worst. Um, and what that does is reflood the area. Um, and so we're calling on all companies who operate in Indonesia to take those immediate steps. Um, dam drainage canals, immediately cease any development on peatland, as well as implement the longer term policies because we just can't see another fire season like last year the the planet can't afford it no when i tried to interview indonesian people about this the question of corruption sort of came up and i felt really awful to ask them that question because we have obviously got corruption in australia too it's not just pointing the finger but how much does that play in slowing down the process of getting this right well i think it's it's really instructive to see that the the Kapaka, the Anti-Corruption Commission in Indonesia, is now looking at that issue of forestry and transparency in land tenure mm. use in Indonesia as, as one of their priorities. So it's clear that, you know, we can't eliminate the role of... We can't, we can't rule out the role that corruption plays mm. in this, and that's why the KPK are leading leading on that. And they're, you know, we should, we should get behind them in the work that they're doing. Okay, thank you very much. Just just for the listeners, I went to a session at this conference about media and they said absolute crucial for media it has to be timely it has to be when the emergency situation is happening it has to be linked to what the people are interested well we're not in indonesia it's not happening right now it will happen again this year probably we need to go against what the uh, mainstream media is telling us they, if they're only going to tell us when the when the coral is bleaching right now or when the peat is burning and uh, we're choking on it we we have to be a bit braver than that so I'm you know I hope you will join up um, with the Greenpeace campaign because they're an international organization and they would be influencing people in Malaysia and Singapore all the countries around that area that are um, investing so thank you very much Jess thank you very much I have um, two Greenpeace people here from Indonesia yes. one is Jess who I spoke to before uh, based in Australia and the other one is Arif Fianto yes. who's speaking at the conference Arif would you tell us just for the audience we're interested in climate change mm. uh, the aspect of a- any action to take to stop climate change what, what are you doing in Indone- Indonesia yeah. about stopping coal so our top priority campaign in Indonesia actually uh, forest campaign uh, and climate uh, campaign because Indonesia is the one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change impact and also the least prepared countries to deal with the impact so that's why we our priority campaign is forest and then uh, the second priority is coal campaign because from the forest sector and coal power plant uh, the emission come from. So what 
uh, I'm doing in Indonesia, uh, we are campaigning against uh, coal power plant and coal mining expansion in the country because it will be the largest uh, emission by 2025 if there is no uh, change on the government energy policy. Okay. I think many Australians or listeners to this program might be surprised that Indonesia is such a big exporter of yes. coal. You know, we think of ourselves as the biggest exporter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think now you said we yeah. we are at the moment the biggest. There's no great pride <laughs> in that. But you have open-cut mines there yes. and such a big population. I wonder where these mines are. So, yes, all of coal mine in Indonesia is open pit mine. Mm. And uh, we have coal reserve in the two big islands, actually, in Kalimantan, Borneo, and in Sumatra. 50% in Kalimantan, 45% in Sumatra, and the rest uh, are uh, spreading in other islands. And this is on agricultural land from the photos you showed us. It looked like beautiful rice paddy right next door. Yes, some of them are in the very productive farming land, some of them in the forest protection area, some of them in the national park. So they take over anything in Indonesia, actually, the coal mine. Well, how do people feel about it? So, if we are talking with the local community who live uh, near the coal mine, near the coal power plant, they never uh, take any benefit from coal. No, not at all. So, when uh, the companies came to the field, to the village, promise uh, it will create job, it's just a lie because when it's starting the operation, everything gone. I mean, the water sources... Uh, the air, the good air quality gone, uh, everything gone, land, so they cannot farm anymore, they cannot fish anymore because the water uh, pollution. So. so do they rebel? We saw uh, Mr. Ramesh Agrawal showed people yeah. sort of rioting really where yeah. coal companies were coming yet again onto farmland, pinching land. Um, do people rebel against this yes. or are they organized? So there, is, there are growing opposition against coal mine and coal power plant in Indonesia actually. Strongest opposition in the coal power plant side in Java and Bali. But there is growing opposition against coal power coal mine expansion in Kalimantan as well because they know the uh, the impact the negative impact to them and then they know they have some of them know they have constitutional right yes. in fighting the dirty uh, project like coal mine and coal power plant. Well, at the moment, in Australia, a lot of our coal mines are in mothballs just mm. being maintained by a few watchmen. And you said the same thing, the coal mm. price is affecting your exports. But I think many people will be surprised to know that this is giving a big push to your president mm. to say, OK, we'll open new mm-hmm. coal-fired power mm-hmm. plants here, new ones, mm-hmm. big ones, uh, to use that coal. Mm-hmm. Um, how can that be stopped? Yes, uh, the government always use the argument that Indonesia still need electricity. Currently, our electrification ratio is around 88%. Uh, means there are around 30 million people, Indonesia people, still uh, have no electricity access. And the government use... Say that again. There are still around uh, 30 million Indonesia people still have no electricity mm-hmm. access. That's the government use this argument. But mm. keep in mind that <laughs> Indonesia is the archipelago country. Mm. We have 17,000 islands. So the people who still doesn't have electricity access live in small islands, yeah. live in remote areas, not in big 
island like Java, Kalimantan, and Sumatra. But the government built the new power plant in uh, this island, big island, not yeah. in the small island. So this is just a false argument from the government because if they want to electrify the community who live in remote area, of course coal is not. Uh, the solution no. because uh, they only need a small electricity, small capacity, mm. and of course uh, solar and any other renewable source can be a perfect solution. Mm. In Java, actually, unlike Japan, unlike Bangladesh, for instance, we have abundant resources of renewable energy. We have geothermal, the largest research geothermal in the world. Geothermal. geothermal. Yes. We have. As a tropical country, of course, we have abundant resources of solar. <laughs> yes, uh, actually, there is no reason for the government to build new power, new coal power plant in Indonesia. But I think this is because of the uh, strong lobby from the coal industry. Yes. Then the our president oh. take. <laughs> their argument and then build new power plant. We've, new heard, power plant. we've heard many people, financial analysts, say, well, this is their last fight. They're yeah, fighting to yeah. the death now, those companies. But just tell me now about renewable energy. Is there a movement to get, for example, in those remote areas, you know, mm. independent solar energy and yes. some wind or geothermal energy? So, yes, currently the energy, um, our energy mix only contributed around 5% by renewable. But uh, in the past few years, uh, there was uh, there is growing uh, movement and investment also in renewable energy, uh, especially in solar and micro hydro, uh, mostly in the remote area in small island. But in Jawa and Bali, in, in the main island, the big island, renewable energy are still uh, lagging behind yeah. because. There are many uh, obstacles, actually, yeah. from the finance, uh, regulation, and no government support. I mean, Not in terms of finance, solar, we can say, is still very expensive yes. because no investment here, no government uh, regulation mm. to prepare the regulation in paper on renewable energy. So, still uh, lagging behind because the obstacle that created by the government itself. So if the government remove the obstacle, then uh, we believe that renewable energy can be developed faster than yeah. uh, now. Uh, one of the um, people, mm. uh, financial analysts, quoted the chairman of China mm. grid, you know, mm. the grid in mm. China, and he mm. said there is no technical obstacle mm-hmm. for this, yes. but it's a mindset. Yes, we have to change right. the mindset. So let's hope that Indonesian, yes. you know, president will start getting this yes. mod- modern mindset. And we talk in Australia, people who think big here are saying maybe Australia, we we, mm. we can export energy, you know, mm. under undersea. Yeah. I don't know if that's of interest, but that's for the future. Yes. One last question, though. Jess talked to me about the forest peat fires, you mm. know, the deforestation yeah. then fire. And um, can you just give us an update on what's been happening since these last really mm. devastating mm-hmm. um, emissions from forest, um, no, uh, palm oil, yes. clearances uh, for palm plantations? The, you mean the recent forest yes. fire? Yes. So the government just established the Peatland Restoration Agency, maybe just know. So the intention for this uh, new agency just uh, is to restoring the pitland yeah. uh, from the recent forest fire. But we still think this is far from enough because no 
transparent information from the government who is doing what uh, then we need the government to open the trans uh, the data uh, the companies who are responsible for uh, that uh, recent forest fire that's why uh, just few weeks before yeah uh, greenpeace uh, globally launched the forest uh, map uh, interactive forest map Indonesia interactive forest map Jess do you have any other questions? Covered it all Thank you very much We've been talking to Mr. Arif Fianto from Indonesia Greenpeace Thank you Well if you listen to 3CO clap your hands If you listen to 3CO clap your hands If you listen to 3CO it's all know where you are If you listen to 3CO clap your hands to the Beyond Zero radio show at the Mayuna Bay conference. It was called Beyond Coal and Gas. Auntie Mabel Quackerwood and Joseph Zane Sezulu were leaders at the Canberra sit-in just before the Paris Climate Conference. They talk here about doing what's right, standing up for the people who are being left behind, whether they are the custodians of sacred places being dug up for coal seam gas or cultural elders on the drowning Pacific Islands. Again, I felt it was a great honour to sit with them. Our guest now is Mabel Kwakiwood. Uh, Mabel is an elder of the Baili Nation and she told the conference about her fight against coal seam gas on Curtis Island near Gladstone. Mabel, uh, what did you learn about fighting? Oh, what did I learn about fighting? Um, I always fight for the underdog and the person who is seems to be badly done by and I think our country is being badly done by these people that are coming in like the cold thin gas and they're not thinking about us at all so therefore I get up and I have my say. Yes. You told the conference that you come from two stolen generations going back to Vanuatu and I'd like to know what has been passed down to you from them from those past generations. Well, I think we were fighters right from back then because we came out here from Vanuatu. We had nothing, Um, but we ended up getting land and we still have land in our family. It's been over 100 years now that that land has been our family. And then on my father's side, my grandfather married an Aboriginal lady from Gladstone and that's how I came to have my Aboriginality for Gladstone. And uh, they were fighters also, and they hid children and they did everything so the children wouldn't be taken. So I learned to fight for for everything that's good from them. So I think many people at the conference um, were amazed at the number of Aboriginal speakers and not, not amazed that they were there, but the depth of what they had to say. 
and the conference gave you a standing ovation this morning. Um, I don't think a lot of people hadn't really paid, even including myself, haven't really paid attention to Aboriginal ideas about the universe and about the song lines and certainly about the sacredness. It comes up in every coal mine and calcium gas situation. There's someone who says, look, there's sacred land here. This is sacred. Uh, but now people are eager to learn something about the sacredness of the water and land. Did you feel that responsiveness here? Did you feel, is, is something changing? Um, this is not representative. Of course, this is all the community activists here, but did you feel a kind of new feeling? Yeah, I feel, feel a new feeling coming through, and I appreciate the European side of people coming into and listening to our stories mm. about the land, the sky, the sea, the waterways and everything else. And they are now believing that we know what that this is God's country, that God created it for us. And the Aboriginal people have always thought that. And they've never ever um, uh, done anything wrong to trees or water or anything they've preserved they've always preserved that from thousands of years yes well i know now we are starting to look to you as custodians and as leaders in this because i think there's a kind of air of desperation especially i know the listeners to this program will know about climate change and that's the last gasp isn't it that's the last pollution when you start destroying the whole climate and changing the weather becomes more intense and more difficult for people who've just seen cyclone winston over in fiji wiping people. People are still in evacuation centres there and so I think people maybe are desperate for that knowledge. You know, a little bit of leadership on how to be custodians. And um, I'd like to ask you, you know, what what do you think we should do as custodians of the land in terms of preserving it for future generations rather than seeing it disappear in front of our very eyes? Well, I would like to see a movement that will challenge all the governments who come to power and stop this because if the governments are willing to pay, receive money from the big mining companies, well, and we are still fighting, which we will be forever, but if they only see that they themselves are ruining it and it's not them in power that is that has the power, it is the Lord that has the power and he can he can wipe anything out to do anything that that is um, not to his liking but people don't seem to worry about that now um, we have lost God from all different areas but then maybe that is my my version uh, and I respect other people's versions but um, when you say that that it's climate change Yes, and then they'll go back in history and say it happened thousands of years ago. But how do we know? Do we have to believe someone in some book or somewhere that says that? Like, it's happening to us now. That's the main point, isn't it? I mean, there is there are scientists who will look back into the record. That's millions of years ago. But right now we've got a, a perfect climate, really, for, for human beings haven't been here that long compared to most other species. So... Um, I, I think we just have to take it as our, our emergency, this is our generation, we have to face it, and this idea of being custodians, I'd like 
people to take it more seriously. And I see you as a staunch leader. You know, you got the, you know, standing ovation, and also the young people who were up on the stage with you. There was one young lady went up and just put her hand on your back. Um, she had seed written on her T-shirt, and um, they said that they were walking in the footsteps um, of people like you. And there were also some young people down from Borolula, which is a tiny community up in the Gulf Country, uh, in Northern Territory. They're now fighting off. Uh, uh, the coal seam. The coal seam gas. Yes. And it's gone right up there. And what they're doing at Buralula, um, we will have to work with them because they're bringing the pipelines right down to Gladstone. That's where they're putting the, the pipelines. So they will ruin all that land from right across the middle of Queensland yeah. from, from in the Northern Territory through okay. to Gladstone. And that, to me, is sa- that's sacred land all through there. But they, they don't realise that that the government is, is saying yes to it. Yes. Well, tell us a bit more about these young people. You know, you said you were uh, jealous of them, you know, that they are getting on with it, whereas in contrast to your generation when, in fact, you were very lonely in what you were doing. But tell us about the young ones. Well, these young people are just so out there that they know what it's all about and they're preserving it for their next generation. Whereas in when I was a young person and you'd fight for something, no one would stand by you and they, they'd say you were a crank. Mm. But now their mothers who are and grandmothers who are as old as I am can see what I did was right. You know, I had to preserve water and do all those things. But now these young ones that's why I'm so jealous because they've got the fight in them while yes. they're still young yes are you hopeful with you as the uh, the staunch person they're following in your footsteps but with their young energy and the fact that coal is going down the plug hole of history I hope and maybe coal seam gas is, is now so obviously wrong people of Queensland have found that out are you, are you hopeful that um, you know eventually the tide will turn on all this I, I have faith that the tide will turn on all this and all those young ones that are there now will lead the way to show us and take care of us in our old age as we go through life because they are thinking, um, uh, very thinking and very out there. They notice things. Mm. They are just so beautiful and um Everywhere they are, I am so privileged that they they call me and I've got a seed shirt at home yes. and I went to their seed thing that they started and I'm just so privileged that they think of me, you yes. know, that I go to their little gatherings. Yes. Well, I, I, I can see the love and respect they, they have for you. It is really lovely to see. I don't really know what seed is. I have seen them at different meetings, but tell us a bit about that. Seed is something that, that they started off. Now, they are carrying the seed they're carrying the seed and everything will grow from them and that is what they are hoping to do well they will do it because they're now going to get the fellows from Bularula to come and be a a seed person also for their area which is such a good thing because then it would go all over Australia yes 
All right. Well, just to finish off, um, I, I was tantalised by one point that the in your introduction they said you'd been in the Air Force as a young woman. Could you just tell the listeners, this is nothing to do with climate change, but I'm just fascinated. What was your experience being in the Air Force? My experience being in the Air Force was just really lovely. Um, there was no racism, but I joined in when it was the White Australia policy. Um, my first my first child was born. I got married, and my first child was born when we got the vote. So, um, you know, that sort of thing. But I thoroughly enjoyed myself in the Air Force. I um, worked in Department of Air. I, um, I was a teleprinter operator, and I learned a lot of things. They called us the code breakers, so <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. So we've been listening to Auntie Mabel Quackerwood, who's a, an elder of the Bailey Nation um, from... Uh, well, she was born in Gladstone. Our guest tonight is Joseph Zane Sikulu, and he's one of the Pacific Climate Warriors. But I want him to mainly speak to us about the sit-in in Canberra at Parliament just before the Paris Climate Conference, which uh, was a very moving event, according to anyone who was there. And the, a lot of them told me about Zane. So, Zane, would you please like to tell us what happened and what you said? Sure. So, the People's Parliament came just after People's Climate March, and it's was just a movement in a, a moment in a whole movement, a whole string of actions. Uh, so it was started off by the People's Climate March where everybody said, we're just going to get on the streets and let the government know what we're doing. And then the next part of that was if they had no, not responded to anything, we were going to sit in Parliament and make sure our voices were heard. And that's, that's what it was. And so the action was about 250, 300 people just randomly walking into parliament and then all of a sudden we formed these circles and we sat in and we carried out what was called people's parliament and right in the middle of the circle was myself and other frontline voices um it was important for us to take part in that just like it's important for us to take part in any action because our story needs to be told and our position on climate change is uncompromising something needs to be done about it and we haven't got time to wait and to be able to get up and speak inside Parliament House where our voices aren't normally heard was was powerful for us. I, Whenever I think about it, I always just think about this one moment when I was stood up in the middle of the circle and the security had started to come and take people away. I looked to the outside and sat right on the outer circle was a man and his child. And when the security came to move him, he just grasped his child really tight and he said no, he wasn't going to move. And they asked him again, please, will you move? And he just held his child and he said no. And the conviction in his face in that moment just really moved me because we're sat here in... in, It was... We were sat there and he put his child between the security and us to be able to give us enough time to be able to share our stories and that really moved me and it's something that will stay with me forever I think because it really exemplifies everything that this movement is about. Everything we do is about preservation of our future, it's about Mm. being able to to leave something to our kids and Mm. his conviction is the exact same conviction that I shared and Mm. I think that's why it really moved me in that moment. Well, the Pacific is a really big place and we hear about the key um, islands. We've interviewed the president of Kiribati and we've talked about various islands that are in imminent danger of being flooded and anyway their crops are being um, ruined. Uh, But 
tell us, sketch in for us, you know, the impact of climate change already and what you see in the future. So there are already islands that are already, that have already gone. And, you know, whenever I tell the story of the Pacific, I'm just sharing that stories that are being told to us through our climate warriors. And I think the most harrowing of that comes from Kiribati, because Kiribati is, when we talk about the front line, they're already there. Um, so King Tides is not something that they're, it's something that they're familiar with. It's something that all the Pacific is familiar with. But just over the last 10 years with the climate having changed the way it has, those effects are just really exacerbated. And once the question was asked to our corner in Kiribati, what do you do when the king tides come in? Now, 90% of Kiribati is under three metres. And when the tides come in or when cyclones come in, when the water swells up, they've got nowhere to run because there is nothing higher than three metres. And his answer was that... He'd gather his family in his living room. He'd take a big piece of rope and he'd tie them together. If the water was going to come and take them, it was going to come and take them all together. And that's the lived reality for the people in the Pacific at the moment. And we're seeing right now just a cyclone's becoming more thick and more destructive. But it's not just that. It's just the ocean is acidifying. The coral is bleaching. The fish are going. The water is being contaminated. It's... It just... There's no way to describe it because it's just, other than the Pacific, is just yeah. being completely destroyed at the moment. Yeah. Well, I think what you've just said about that man putting himself between you to give you time to speak and to gather that group, and there were parliamentarians there listening to you, um, I think that's what we're, we're begging for time. This conference, a lot of coal affected communities and calcium yeah. gas, they're yeah. delaying, yeah. begging for time just, just until the dawn of new thinking comes, you know, the social revolution or what other yeah. things are going to happen. But um, I just think with the Pacific, it, it hasn't dawned on Australians. I mean, the president of Kiribati asked us to stop yeah. new coal mines. Yeah. He wasn't unreasonable. He didn't say stop your whole industry. He just said no new coal mines. And we couldn't even agree to that. Yeah. Uh, president, uh, Prime, Prime Minister of New Zealand asked Malcolm Turnbull to stop fossil fuel subsidies yeah. before uh, at Paris. No, we couldn't even do that. So what more needs to be happen, happening in that space that you've tried to create to be heard what more needs to be happen to happen a lot more needs to happen um, I think Leonardo in his Oscar speech said something that really resonated with me he said that he stands up for the people whose voices are drowned out by the politics of greed and that's what's happening in this country is that the fossil fuel lobby is just so powerful at the moment and they're there's no moving. All we can do is just make as much noise as we can. Because there is no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why we're stepping up our direct actions, which is why we try to speak up wherever we can. We just have to make as much noise as we can. And at the moment, sometimes you just feel like it's not being heard. But It probably isn't being heard, but I, from this conference, I got plenty of workshops I went to yeah. where people said, look... Yeah. They're desperate. Now, this is their last stand. Of course, they're fighting for their business investments, but it's their last stand. They're not as powerful as we think. And all the revelations about corruption and uh, revolving door in Parliament and all of that, that's starting to make people wake up and we'll see. Okay, So that was Joseph Zainzikulu from the Pacific Climate Warriors. You're listening to 3CR Radio. 
Indeed, and you're listening to the Beyond Zero Community Show here at, on Monday night, 5 to 6 p.m. every week. And don't forget our sister show on Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. Viv this week has taken us to Myuna Bay uh, to a conference they had up there April 8th to the 11th, I believe, called the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference. Uh, this is a two-part show. We've got Myuna, Myuna Bay 1 tonight and next week Myuna Bay 2. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Here we are back at the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference at Myuna Bay. It was a beautiful experience for me meeting the next speaker. I felt like I was sitting with a modern day Mahatma Gandhi. He sat with his left leg propped up on a sofa and his adult son was there in case we needed a translator. But we didn't. He had a disarming and humorous manner even when telling me about how the assassins had come to get him. They walked into his internet cafe in Chhattisgarh in India and when he saw the gun he threw his mobile phone at them which just saved his life. Their bullets went into his leg instead of his heart and then they ran away. He said he doesn't remember how many operations he's had on that leg since then. Later in the public session he showed a film of a public consultation in India set up so that village people could have their say about a new coal project. It ended with the police beating the people very badly. These are the horrible battles at the end of the carbon age and everyone in that conference hall knew what it's about. And Ramesh Agrawal is one of our heroes. Our guest tonight is Ramesh Agrawal. He has been invited by the Lock the Gate Alliance to warn Australia about the Jindal Steel and Power Company. It operates in his state of Chhattisgarh in India and he helped stop one of their massive coal mine projects. He has been in prison and he has been shot by assassins. Welcome, Ramesh. Firstly, I'd like to say how honoured we are to have you on our radio show. You received the Goldman Environmental Prize, which I've looked up, and it's called the Green Nobel Prize. So I'm very honoured to have you with us. Tell us why you received that prize. About the prize? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have been selected as a, due to my activism at grassroots level. Yeah. I worked for last 10, 15, 10 to 15 years for the communities. Most of the people are the tribal ones, mm-hmm. primitive tribes, who are very innocent people and don't know nothing. They are there living there on culture mm-hmm. and mainly depends on the forests. Mm-hmm. Found forest, they uh, collect some kinds of forest produces mm. and sell it to in the market and have some money to buy the food. Okay. But due to industrialization, forest were degraded or forest were converted into mines. Mm. 
so they lost their means of livelihood mm-hmm. and they were no one there to hear companies like jindals mm-hmm. were playing lot of tactics mm-hmm. to have their lands and exploiting them by every means they don't offer them jobs though they take their land but they don't try to re- offer them jobs or rehabilitate them or resettle them or nothing for the communities they promised a lot of development the roads the colleges the hospitals they promised at the time of land acquisition but they never comply with it Well, you know, you started out as a social worker and I can see you're a very concerned person. Just the look on your face, you this is such a huge problem, all of these problems for those as you say very innocent people, tribal people who are living far away from the internet as it were and you had an internet cafe. Yeah. What made you really devote your life to this or give this part of your life th- so that you got the Goldman Prize? What made you make common cause with those people? Well, I have a very frequent chances to meet the communities mm. and going to villages mm. so when i saw all these things are happening to mm. these communities and no one going to hear them mm. because they are very innocent they can't raise they are not able to digest mm. what's happening there mm. so it be make it our goal our motto that we should do something for the communities and started the campaign namely jan chetna jan means people and chetna means awareness means creating awareness between the communities mm. about their very fundamental rights mm. granted by the constitution of india mm. what happens to a farmer for example who says i don't want to sell my land to you to jindal says no we're having a new coal mine here we've got lots of steel i believe in your state you have 25 million people and you produce a lot of steel it's like a big machine coming what does one farmer what happens to him if he says no if the farmers don't want to sell his land then they apply certain kinds of tactics they will dump their industrial waste in his land oh. so it will be of no use to the farmer so they it pollute will, his land yeah it will become unfertile <laughs> so ultimately have no choice but to sell the the, the land mm. at company's office at mm. company's price mm. you don't get the fair price mm. it's forced land grabbing mm-hmm. suppose they don't dump, dump the uh, industrial waste is then they will buy the other land surrounding that land yeah. so he is not able to enter his own land uh-huh. and has but no option but to sell the land mm. a kind of tactics they apply yeah. to have the lands of the village well, you um your jan chetana helped people with information and uh, the jindal steel company then lost a court case yeah. through you yeah. and then you were shot those <laughs> terrible things happened but yeah. how did that happen it was it just uh, how did that happen um actually it is the um, practice of the jindal company that uh, whoever uh, opposed their illegalities or exposed them or uh, try to uh, create awareness among the communities or uh, which harm their interest mm. 
put put them in trouble they first try to bribe the person if it doesn't work then they implicate the person in some false cases even if it doesn't work they try to eliminate the person <laughs> all these things happens to me <laughs> first they offered me a lot of money or jobs or contracts in their company <laughs> i refused <laughs> then they sent me to jail on false charges of defamation <laughs> and it was well planned they arrested me when the court was were on holidays mm. the court was not working uh-huh. i suppose you were making defamation in yeah. their eyes by making speeches against their company yeah yeah, yeah. so it was not a major case it's a flimsy charges yeah. they can't prove it in court and i had said nothing like that mm-hmm. it was a government organized public hearing mm-hmm. where i made my speech so they can't sue me for defamation mm. but they at the police was on their side administration was their side government was on their side they arrested me then from the lower court to the high court and i had been in jail for 73 days Okay. But you won a case against Jindal and they had to stop that mine and yeah. I think you've got some more cases like that in front of yeah, the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, about these mines, uh, communities uh, were uh, already suffering a lot from the mines. The area have many coal mines operated by the private owners. So Jindal is the major player. Mm. They have three coal mines already there and as I told people were already very fed up and they decided that we don't allow any other coal mines in our area. Mm. They were very rigid about it. Then they said we can do anything. So the community people and me <laughs> myself yeah. approached the court it took almost f- uh, 5 or 6 years to decide the court mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately our national green tribunal the highest court of the environment we have there you can say the supreme court of environment mm-hmm. they decided in favor of communities we won that case and they say it's a same full public hearing and we haven't imagined that this could happen <laughs> by the government office officers yeah. in very harsh words yes so they set aside their approval mm. and the communities and we we the win the case and the jindas lost that mine Well, listeners, this is a very hard battle, as you can see, but it's wonderful to hear that you have a green court. We don't have this in Australia. And that brings us now to Australia. You're touring here to tell us something and to warn us. So at the moment in New South Wales, the government wants a mine. Uh, Jindal Steel and uh, um, Power Company have bought a mine near Wollongong. The government here wants it to go ahead because they get royalties and jobs. But the Department of Water is already starting to say, well, no, because they... they will have 700 7 million liters a day yeah. of water they'll use it for the mine and they could damage underneath the water where our drinking water comes from the rock could be damaged by long wall mining or well, we know all about that the cracks the water just disappears what do we need to know about jindal steel and power as a kind of suitable company to do this work are, are they a suitable company i will add to this first thing the coal is the dirtiest fuel so we should not opt for coal any coal mine 
वेरी रिस्की इन एनी एरिया वेदर इट इज ऑस्ट्रेलिया और इंडिया और अमेरिका एनीथिंग एल्स सो फर्स्ट थिंग वी शुड नॉट थिंक ऑफ एनी कोल माइंस इट्स इन इंपैक्ट्स आर वेरी एडवर्स देन द सेकंड थिंग व्हिच मैटर्स हु ऑन्स द माइंस इफ द माइंस ऑनर इज रेपुटेशन इज इन क्वेश्चन देन द इंपैक्ट विल बी मोर एडवर्स because they are not they are not complying with the environmental laws they are violating environmental laws they don't think about the development of communities they promised all the time so they have many criminal cases pending in the court against violation of environmental norms creating pollutions that's enough for me i think you said enough that's enough listeners this is hot stuff we have a big argument here we have even people in the parliament who own mines we have one called clive palmer big mine magnate yeah. and he always says we are exporting coal to take india out of energy poverty you know many millions of indian people do not have electricity so we are sending them our coal to help them is this true listen it's a very uh, political statement yes. okay i would like to say if they are supplying the coal because millions of people don't have electricity in india are they supplying the coal free of cost no <laughs> no it's not a charity of course <laughs> it's not a charity no. so forget about the communities that don't have the electricity so it's our obligation to supply the coal yes. if the coal market as of now goes down and there is no buyer mm. it's happening yes the coal market is very down yes and we have ample quantity of coal there mm. at present that we don't have space to store the coal so government has to decrease the production of the coal so i am not agree with this no. i am not agree to buy this argument because the indians are deprived of the electricity oh. so we, we are supplying the coal to the indian companies yeah. okay well that takes us to climate change the group that i am broadcasting for we're all about climate change and climate action so i interview people who are doing wind farms here and solar plants there but also a lot of the anti coal and anti gas because it's urgent isn't it to yes. stop that trade now leave it behind in the last century that's what we think but uh, there are still a lot of people with no electricity i want to know how popular is the idea in india or in your area the people you're working with how popular is it to to have have electricity but have it from renewable energy and have it decentralized away from the grid you know with solar pv and wind close to where people are how popular is that uh, wind energy is not possible at all the places no because it need a lot of forced forcible air it's uh, possible near the sea shore and all but the solar energy is the best option so the people are now thinking about it because it um, it's the cheaper one and you are not uh, depends on the government to supply you electricity you have your own electricity on your rooftop or some somewhere else mm-hmm. so you can have the electricity your own and it will don't degrade your environment you don't be displaced yeah. and you will earn the money also 
So the solar energy is the best option. Wind energy is the best option. So we should think of the environment, the climate change problem. The whole world is worried about it. Yes. There is, it is just a major concern about it. Yes. Many countries like China and others have stopped or in process of yes. avoiding the coal. Yes. They have shut down their coal-fired power plants. It's so dirty. Yes. So now. India should also, and the people all around the world should think about the other sources of energy. Mm-hmm. Although it's uh, it's not we can't do it immediate because major part of our energy comes from the coal. Yes. So transformation is not that easy, mm-hmm. and not in the years. It will take years. Yes. But at least we should initiate the pro- process. So in coming ten or fifteen years, we will we won't depend on the coal coal energy. Yeah. I'm glad you've said that because a lot of people are just saying, "Oh, stop the coal because of the land and the water," and they just don't want to talk about climate change. But I'm really glad you've said it so clearly because every country is struggling with this. Yeah. I'm just coming to the end. Just I wanted to mention another one of the Goldman Prize winners was Berta Caceres from Honduras. And she she was killed. Very unfortunate. I know. She was killed a few weeks ago and she was defending her people's land. She was an indigenous yeah, yeah, person yeah, yeah, yeah. from mining and hydroelectric dams. Now, yeah. you've been shot at. You've... You, you seem so relaxed and pleasant, but you've been through really terrible trials yourself. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, how does your family feel about that, um, you know, doing this work? And, and, and how do you go on doing it? What motivates you? I know it's a very unfortunate incident. But it it's happening in many countries. If you are going against the interest of the corporate houses or the government, they harass you in lot of manners and sometimes they kill you or put behind the bars. Well, yes, but it's a big tragedy. I'm, uh, you know, I, I know your family must think about this when they see yeah. you doing this brave work, but it's been very inspiring talking to you and I'm sure the listeners will take some inspiration because we're in these battles here too. We have so much coal here. We want to get the money, you know, and jobs and all that, but we have to be very brave and fight too, but fight with a brain, brain power. So thank you for being such a wonderful guest and it's a victory for the land, you know, that you've won there and empowering. I think those people, uh, I love it that you have an internet cafe that they now, they see the value of, you know, accessing information. They come into the internet, talk to you in the little internet cafe. So thank you for that. I think every coal mine that you can stop is a victory for climate. So thank you very much. And the battle goes on. That was Myuna Bay Part 1, Vivian at the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference. We're bringing you next week uh, a host of, a clutch of uh, interviewees at the Myuna Bay Part 2 uh, show. So be be sure to stay tuned for that. So tonight Vivian caught up with uh, Jessica Pangyros, Arif Fianto, Auntie Mabel Quakerwoot, Joseph Sane Sikalu and Ramesh Agrawal. Truly a, uh, a collection of communities at this conference in, in New South Wales.